for live streaming. We have uh, fixed a couple of things with our Internet provider, so hopefully uh, we won't be having the, some of the buffering and other problems we've been having. So if you do, please let us know. Also, uh, we're gonna be, there are going to be some changes apparently coming up, uh, improvements on uh, some of this, and uh, so you can uh, be in prayer. We can work out all this technical stuff, none of which is going to go into effect until after the conference because we don't want to mess anything up for the conference. And that's the only major announcement, I think, is that the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference that we host here every year begins uh, on March the 12th, which is in uh, about 10 days, right, 12 days. And so be in prayer for that. Be in prayer for the men who are preparing their safe travels, everyone else who's coming, and, and uh, their safe travels. Another thing that you should be aware of is that uh, coming starting this uh, coming Sunday morning, the uh, uh, American uh, Israel, um, what is it? I always remember. It's not, is it policy? American Israel... Um, Public uh, Affairs Public Affairs Committee. I always mis misremember the P. Public Affairs Committee. Be call it a PAC. It's not a PAC. APAC, though. It's pronounced APAC, but APAC meet starts me. And every year there's always something interesting that happens, at least the last three or four years that I've gone. Uh, since uh, President Obama has been in office, there's always friction with Israel between the president and Prime Minister Netanyahu. And it's just interesting. And this morning, uh, if you didn't hear it, the Israelis announced to, and told the U.S. government that, no, we don't think we'll tell you if we decide to uh, attack Iran. And we'll just do it on our own, and thank you very much. And so that's uh, set the stage on Monday. Uh, uh, Netanyahu and Obama are meeting that's always been interesting. So, and this year at APAC, uh, uh, Gingrich, Romney are speaking, Obama speaking, Netanyahu speaking, uh, who else is speaking? A few others, Liz Cheney speaking, William Crystal speaking. Uh, so it should be a very interesting uh, conference this year as it always is. So, and, and things are, are heating up this morning. I was, had, was invited to participate with a number of other uh, church leaders. One other member of uh, West Houston was there uh, in attendance as well. That w this was uh, an event hosted by the uh, Israeli Consul General here, Mayor Shlomo, um, and it was a uh, sort of a training session for people to present, uh, uh, you know, a positive case for Israel and what's going on. There's so much misinformation, disinformation, lies and myths about Israel. And it was a good session, and I will kind of combine some of the things that I picked up from the session this morning with my APAC report uh, when I return uh, next week. So uh, I'll just kind of put all, roll all of that together. But it's interesting right now. We're living in such exciting times with what's going on with Iran and what is going on with Israel and the Middle East and Syria and the uh, Arab Spring, which has deteriorated into an Islamic winter. And, uh, and all of this has put Israel... Israel used to live in a bad neighborhood. The bad neighborhood has turned into a pool of, of sharks and piranhas. So it's just gotten, gotten worse. So we need to be in prayer about all of these things. And, of course, history is in the Lord's hands. 
Jesus Christ controls history, and we know that no matter what happens or what the uh, what kind of threats are breathed out by Ahmadinejad, and uh, otherwise known as Ahmadinejad, um, whatever threats, that's how you can remember how to pronounce that, whatever threats are there that they are, he, he, one of his most recent threats was that Israel is a malignant tumor on the earth that needs to be radiated by an atomic bomb. But God has promised that Jerusalem will always survive forever and ever. And so will Israel, so we can have great confidence there. Well, before we begin this evening, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have the uh, certain promises of your word that we can go to in every issue in life, in our personal problems, as well as when we observe the, uh, the <clears throat> chaotic events that loom in, in history, that we know that no matter what happens, no matter how chaotic things might get, no matter how out of control things might seem, we know that you are ultimately in control and that your promises will be fulfilled. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for uh, this, this country, for the leadership of this country. We pray because of the problems we face due to the economy, due to uh, continued threats against us from foreign powers who are jealous and antagonistic of us. We pray for our leaders that they might have their eyes open to truth and that they might make decisions based upon wisdom and not be deceived according to their own um, false concepts of reality or the uh, political uh, machinations of those who really do not have the best interests of this country in mind. We pray that you would um, be working to to continue to protect this nation, that we might be a bulwark of support for Israel, and that we might also be a nation that continues to send out missionaries who proclaim the truth of the gospel that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that we might continue to be a, a bulwark of truth in this nation. We pray for this congregation, for our faithfulness. We're thankful for so much that you have done in providing for us, and we're thankful for so many in the congregation who are do, doing so many things behind the scenes uh, that make everything possible that we do in this ministry. Father, we pray for our study this evening that you might help us to see how we can take the things that we study and apply them in terms of our own internal ministry within this church as well as to others, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Last week, we began a study in Acts chapter 6, which is a focal point of another growth uh, growth event in the early church. They were going through various growing pains. Uh, one problem that we saw earlier within the church was the problem of the deception of Ananias and Sapphira. They also have had growing pains due to opposition from outside the church, specifically from the priests and the Sadducees, 
And now we see that there's another area of difficulty arising within the church. There's dissension, and it is legitimate dissension, apparently, that there are uh, two groups within this church, this group of new Christians that have uh, trusted in Jesus as Messiah uh, during the this first six months or so of uh, since uh, the day of Pentecost. Uh, the day the crucifixion occurred in the spring of 33, and then in the summer of 33, or in June of 33, was the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the, there's the birth of the church with the apostles preaching on the steps of the, uh, on the steps of the temple, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then the church uh, goes through some initial growth as thousands respond positively to the gospel presentation given by Peter. And then in Acts chapter 3, we have another episode involving the uh, lame man who is healed by Peter and John. And then there's their arrest and appearance before the Sanhedrin the first time, and then their release. And then there's a second event where they are uh, re-arrested and the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin. They're threatened and beaten. And at the conclusion of chapter 5, we see a, a statement that daily in the temple and every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. This covers an unknown period of time before the events of chapter 6 begin. Many scholars who have worked through the chronology of various things put this event to be sometime the next winter, uh, sometime January, February, or March of 34. And so a little time has gone by. Uh, some put it as late as the end of 34. So it's uh, sometime in that next period. There's nothing uh, specific that we uh, can can tie this together. Just some time has gone by uh, before these events. And now there is some dissension within the ranks because there's a, uh, a cause of complaint by the group of Hellenistic uh, widows. And as I pointed out last time, the Hellenistic uh, group are those Jews who have come from a Greek background. Maybe they, uh, especially among the widows, maybe they lived outside of Judea for much of their life, and so they have uh, accepted, adopted, and been trained in, a, uh, in the Greco-Roman culture. And they, their, their primary language was, was Greek, and they have returned to live back in Judea. And then there's the other group that are referred to as Hebrews, and these are the uh, native-born Jews who live in either Judea or Galilee, but live in the uh, historic land of Israel. And uh, there's a complaint by the Hellenists that they're being neglected. The widows were not being treated the same way as the as the uh, Hebrew widows, and that there was some bias, some discrimination uh, that was going on. And apparently, there's there's at least a sense of legitimacy here because the twelve have to solve this problem, and they do not treat it as an illegitimate problem, but they treat it as a as a legitimate problem. But what we see here is that uh, a situation that grows out of the out of the Old Testament responsibilities of 
of believers for the uh, treatment of widows. And again, we see that between the Old and the New Testament, there are certain things that continue the same. Uh, We have a dispensational shift, which is just a word that means that that God in his overall administration of of human history uh, is, is changing the rules. Uh, this has happened several times before. It happened prior to Adam's sin. When Adam disobeyed God, the rules changed a little bit, and you have uh, the next dispensation moving from the first dispensation of innocence to the next dispensation of human conscience. And then with the uh, uh, disobedience of mankind prior to the flood, God is God has to judge the human race again. And there is a major judgment at the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. And so there's an administration shift. There's a new covenant given with the Noahic covenant. Uh, following the flood of Noah, there is a command to populate the earth. A man is to go forth and fill and uh, uh, replenish the earth, multiply and replenish the earth. And they fail to do that. They gather at uh, Babel and build a tower in opposition to God. It is specifically a religious, political uh, act of hostility and rebellion against God, and as a result, God brings judgment upon uh, uh, the human race at the Tower of Babel. There's a scattering of the human race by the division of languages, and at that point, God shifts again in the way he's administering human history by working through uh, one individual whom he calls out from Ur the Chaldees by the name of Abram or Avram in the Hebrew. And he calls out Avram, and through Avram he is now going to work with uh, all of his descendants through whom he will bring blessing to the entire human race. Uh, there's another dispensational or administrative shift that occurs uh, when the uh, Jewish people are released from slavery in Egypt. And God gives another covenant, the Mosaic Law. And so there's an administrative shift that occurs. There are certain things that continue to be the same, certain things that change. And that's what you have every time there is a dispensational or or administrative shift. Some things uh, uh, change. Some things stay the same. Some things continue. Some things are discontinued. And this is a terminology that's used by by theologians, they talk about continuity and discontinuity, they just, which just simply means some things stay the same and some things are different. Uh, one of the things that will be different uh, in this transition that occurs with the birth of the church is that there will no longer be a central sanctuary, worship at a central sanctuary, which was part of the Mosaic Law, which has been fulfilled and come to an end by virtue of the death of Christ, And Jesus had predicted this in John chapter 4 in his conversation with the woman at the well that he said at this time, uh, we worship at uh, the temple, but there will come a time uh, when we worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. And that are foreshadowing that uh, there would be a soon coming end to uh, the worship at a central sanctuary in Jerusalem. But we're in a transition zone here in Acts, so that what we see is that the apostles are still participating in temple worship because Israel is still a covenant nation with God and they are still in the land. Uh, God does not bring into effect uh, the fulfillment of his judgment promises from uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy uh, 28 and 29 
until A.D. 70. This is no different from the judgments that God had uh, God brought against the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 uh, B.C. By, when the Assyrian Empire defeated them and uh, uh, re, uh, re, uh, moved, re, uh, brought in new populations and, and moved the Jewish uh, survivors to other parts of the uh, Akkadian Empire. And then in 586... B.C., you have Nebuchadnezzar coming in and destroying Jerusalem and the temple uh, in a way that that is identical to what happens in A.D. 70. It's not a problem to understand 722 and 586 as a judgment of God upon the Jewish people for their idolatry, and the same kind of thing is going on in the first century. Uh, uh, Something I've really come to appreciate at a greater level Christians usually say the reason that this occurs, and according to what Jesus said, the primary reason that the judgment of AD 70 occurs is because of the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. But at the same time, there is a rejection of God. There is uh, arrogance. There's uh, a complete uh, uh, division within the people of Israel. The whole culture is fragmenting and uh, uh, just self-imploding. And as a result of that, because they have rejected uh, God, God brings judgment again upon uh, Judea and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. But that is yet to come. We're we're 35 years from that in Acts chapter 6, but we see that uh, one of the things here that continues from the Old Testament uh, there with slight modifications is that the people of God are to take care of those within their ranks that are that do not have family members who can provide for them. One of the things we should keep in mind as we look at this uh, at what the Bible teaches about taking care of the widows and they are usually connected to taking care of the fatherless or the orphans is that it is all built upon an understanding of what we've studied many times in the past, which is the divine institutions. The divine institutions, there are five divine institutions, and these five divine institutions are uh, social laws that are established by God, built into the warp and woof of, of his creation. They're just as real as physical laws are just as real as the law of gravity, they're just as real as the first and second laws of thermodynamics, but they do not have the same immediate consequences when they are violated as the laws of of, uh, of science. For example, if somebody violates the law of gravity, they're probably not going to survive, or if they do, they will have a broken bone or two or three or more. Now, if you violate the law of, of the divine establishments of volition or of marriage or of family, you don't see the immediate consequences within the first hour or two. You may not see the consequences until the next generation or two. It takes time for those that, that violation to work itself out. Uh, and so people think, hmm, we're getting away with this. And they're not getting away with anything at all. It leads to the self-destruction and the implosion of a culture. No culture in the history of humanity has survived a matriarchy. There is no uh, example throughout history of a female-led culture that is successful because that is not how God built uh, the sexes. 
Man is to be the leader, not the abusive leader, but the positive, humble leader under the authority of God. And women are to be the helper of the man. This is how the man and woman were created according to Genesis chapter 2. Children are to be obedient to parents, but when parents fail in their responsibility to be godly leaders and to teach them the word correctly, then the children grow up without authority orientation. And as a result of that, when you do not have authority orientation, then what is bred into the soul is arrogance. And when arrogance is multiplied by millions, then you have a million people who do not know how to submit to one another, do not know how to deal with people in terms of humility, in terms of love, the basic principle from Leviticus 19.18, to love, uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And when you don't have humility and it's replaced by arrogance, then again it leads to a fragmentation uh, within the family and a fragmentation of culture. When you have uh, uh, marriage replaced by a recognition and legitimization of homosexual marriage, then this destroys the core unit of society, which is the, the family and marriage. And those two go intimately together, the first three divine institutions of of, uh, human responsibility, marriage, and family are all designed by God, built into the nature of of humanity and and mankind, humanity as a social being before sin ever comes along. And then once sin comes along, these things just become exacerbated. And then later God has to add the fourth and fifth divine institutions, which are designed to restrain the depravity, the sinfulness of man, the propensity of man to uh, be evil. Some people get a lot of uh, get, get wrong ideas about what uh, it means to believe in total depravity. This is often the case uh, when I've had some discussions with some of my Jewish friends. Uh, there's a misunderstanding there. We believe that man is guilty of Adam's sin, and they do not have that belief within Judaism. Uh, but when we say we b- believe man is inherently evil, we don't mean that man can't do good things. We believe that man is a sinner and he has a propensity that left without the control of authority and law and scripture and God, then man is, you know, just as water flows downhill, uh, so is human behavior. It will flow towards the path of least resistance. And so his essential nature of self-centeredness will manifest itself. And this is what sin is. Sin is nothing more than violating the character of God. It doesn't mean that you're a sinner because you're going to be as evil as Charles Manson or that you're going to be uh, as evil as a as a uh, an Adolf Hitler, or that you're going to be a mass murderer. It simply means that you have a propensity towards self-centeredness, which can manifest itself in different directions. As we've studied with the sin nature diagram, it can manifest itself in terms of doing uh, good, and it can manifest itself in terms of doing evil. But whenever we do anything apart from dependence upon God, God says all throughout the entire Old Testament that this is sin, this is evil. And so when we violate these standards of of, uh, the divine institutions, then what happens is society begins to 
uh, crumble. It, it, the, the violations of the divine institutions are the termites that destroy a civilization. And we will study a lot of this in the, at the Chafer Conference when we deal with the whole issue of <clears throat> the role of the Christian in, a, in relation to a national inter- entity and what the Bible teaches about government and leadership and uh, the role of the believers within any national entity in terms of respect for authority. But within all of this, we have these two divine institutions of, of marriage and the family. And when... And, and that's, they're both predicated upon a recognition of human responsibility. And one area of responsibility that we have from God, uh, it's articulated in the Mosaic Law, that didn't begin it, but it's articulated there as the law of, of love in uh, Leviticus chapter 19, 18, that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And that means we're to take care of one another. There's, that was embedded within the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, and that meant to take care of people in, the, in society that could not take care of themselves, and that this is a part of the uh, responsibility that, that we have. And so this, uh, <clears throat> what is going on here in Acts 6 in terms of the distribution for the needs of the widows is something that is embedded in Jewish culture going back to the Mosaic Law, and it is now having a few modifications as it's going to be brought into the the standard of behavior within the um, uh, within the church. Last time I pointed out that that uh, the beginning of the verse in Acts 6.1 now in those days indicates that this is at the time of the expansion of the church. As, uh, it was indicated at the end of Acts chapter 5. The number of the disciples, we talked about disciples last night, that disciples is a term that refers to those who have aligned themselves to a particular teacher. The term disciple is not a synonym of a believer. There were disciples such as Judas Iscariot who were not believers. There were Believers who decided not to become disciples, but they did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and so therefore they were saved and they had eternal life. Uh, there are other passages where the term is used as a synonym for those who are actively involved uh, within the uh, local church and within the visible display of Christianity, and that's what you have here in the first verse. In those days when the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint uh, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And so I think it's important to understand what this responsibility is and why this was uh, important. So to do so, we need to go back to the Old Testament. And the first place where we have uh, any clear teaching on this is in Exodus. This is how you build a biblical theology. You start with the beginning, the first time that a doctrine or a teaching or a topic is mentioned, and then as you go through book by book down through the ages, uh, scholars call this a diachronic study where you're going through time. D is the Greek preposition for through, chronos for time. You're going progressively through time, and we see the progressive revelation of God. The idea of progressive revelation is also uh, something that's very much a part of dispensational thinking because God did not dump everything in one huge information download on Adam uh, the first day that he created Adam. 
there is a progress to revelation and to the information that God gives. And so God doesn't just give everything at one time. So we'll go, we go back to the Mosaic law and remember the context here in Exodus chapter 22 is that this is part of the case law in the Mosaic law. When you think about the Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant, the, the uh, thing that you should relate it to is the constitution of a nation, and you can relate it to the Constitution of the United States. This is the basic legal document that uh, provided for the governing authority and the law of the land for the new nation Israel. In order to have a nation, you have to have three things. You have to have a people, you have to have land, and you have to have a governing structure. And so we have now a people that are coming out of Egypt because of God's redemption of the nation through the uh, death of the Passover lamb, uh, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, and he's going to take them to the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to give this land to their descendants in perpetuity forever and ever. And so now that he is going to take them to this new land, he's going to give them a new law. This law is going to govern them. Uh, this law is given uh, in a more specific way in terms of uh, divine inspiration. It is more of a dictation than what we have in other areas of Scripture. God uh, does not uh, normally uh, govern the process of inspiration through dictation, but in this sense, the, we know the Scripture says that the law is written by the hand of God, the finger of God, and so this is specifically revealed uh, by God to Moses to be the law of the of the land. It starts off with the Ten Commandments, and let me uh, tell you, we, we've had some debate in this country. Uh, sadly, it's gone the wrong way, but there's been debate in this nation about whether or not we ought to have um, we ought to have images of the of the Ten Commandments in courtrooms. Um, I'm going to give you a little hint. I'll refer to this when we get into the conference. But it's really a misnomer. It's the, really the Ten Words, but there aren't Ten Commandments. Anybody know how many commandments there are? What? Well, in the whole law, there's 613. But if you just look at the Decalogue, how many commandments are there? There's 10 words, but there are, read the imperatives, 14 commandments. On the sixth, you shall work six days. That's a commandment. We always focus on, and you will rest on the seventh. But it's preceded by a commandment to work for six days. So there's, there's an extra commandment right there. There's other commandments in, in the previous uh, commandments related to thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make any images. See, there's a, another imperative there that expands on the on the second commandment. So actually there's 14 imperatives in the Ten Commandments. Just thought you would want to know that in case you have a Bible trivia quiz show up sometime soon. So, and in the total uh, Torah, there are 613 commandments. Torah is a word that we normally translate law. It's what the uh, Hebrew language uses to refer to law, but it also means instruction. And the Torah was given to the people of God to instruct them on how they were to live as God's adopted son. God said in Exodus 
uh, chapter uh, 19, that he was adopting them as his, uh, Israel as his firstborn son. And so there is a standard of behavior for God's family. And so there, the, the protocol for God's family is laid out in the 613 commandments, and they're laid out in terms of case law. It doesn't, case law doesn't address every possible contingency, but what it does is, is it establishes parameters and patterns. And so when we get into Exodus chapter uh, 22, uh, we come to a whole series of different uh, commandments dealing with all kinds uh, of different situations and different circumstances. Some of them uh, have to do with uh, slavery. Some of them have to do with sorcery. Some of them have to do with sexual sin. Some of them have to do uh, with uh, uh, other aspects of uh uh, of, of just the, how the people of God are going to love one another. It's all a manifestation of <clears throat> of the uh, basic principle of Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When the <clears throat> when Jesus is asked what I, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus said there are two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is in Matthew 22.37 and 38. He said, this is the first uh, and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the when you look at the Decalogue, uh, it's basically divided into two sections. One section deals with what it means to love the Lord your God exclusively with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the other commandments relate to how uh, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, you're going to honor your parents. You're not going to commit adultery. You're going to uh, not bear false witness against others. You're not going to steal. This is uh, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And then these are expanded in all of the different, uh, uh, the other 603 commandments that are given in the, uh, in the Mosaic Law. So when we come to Exodus 22, verse 22, we have a first reference, first uh, mandate, first statute, we might say, uh, in relation to uh, the treatment of widows and the treatment of the fatherless. Now, we're not going to slip into a liberal mentality. See, vocabulary is very important because vocabulary brings baggage with it. We want to stick with the biblical vocabulary. We're not going to talk about those who are on the margins of society because they're not. They're not treated as being on the margin. What's being treated here is God is saying, it's just dead wrong to treat these people the wrong way. And you don't get into this kind of modern terminology, those who are who are uh, marginalized, those who are disenfranchised, uh, that, that brings with it a host of ideas that are not part of what biblical, uh, the biblical language has. It's just a straight command, you shall, not, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless uh, child. And the word here uh, that is translated uh, afflict is uh, the Hebrew word anah, which is in the PL active, which is PL and stem intensifies the meaning of the, uh, the the root meaning of the word, and it has several interesting meanings. First of all, it means to oppress. So you shall not oppress any widow or uh, or fatherless child. Uh, 
Uh, it has the idea of causing someone to be dependent. Now think about that a minute. As part of the word meaning here, you don't want to create an environment where you make the orphan or the widow dependent. Dependent upon who? Dependent upon government would be one thing they would be dependent upon because now you've basically enslaved them to the the federal plantation. And so it's very important to understand that these mandates that are given here are given to individuals and the culture as a whole. It's not addressed to the uh, Israel government. How do we know that? What's the government of Israel at this point? It's a theocracy. And God is the uh, chief executive officer in a theocracy. So this is being addressed to the people. This is They are responsible individually for the treatment of others within the society. That's what it means to love one another as yourself. So you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Why? Because in that culture... The, the protection came from the husband and from the father. And when there wasn't a, a male there to provide that protection, then there is a loss of protection, loss of income, loss of provision for a widow and also for children or orphans. And so this word afflict has to do with taking advantage of them, uh, oppressing them in some way. It can even mean to humiliate them, to do violence to them in terms of rape, uh, to uh, treat them in an unjust manner. And there are people in every culture who target uh, orphans and who target widows as victims. And this is a direct mandate against that. There are people who look at widows as being an easy mark for either uh, sexual reasons or for financial reasons or for emotional reasons, but they are going to target them because there's not a male around uh, in order to provide protection uh, for them. And so it is important in those cases that there be someone who stands in the gap as a protector for them. And the one ultimately who does that is God. And this is demonstrated in the... um, Next couple of verses, God says, if you afflict them, if you oppress them, if you take advantage of them in any way, and they cry at all to me, this is the widows crying out to God for protection in prayer, I will surely hear their cry. Now, that's a great promise. I don't have that in the promise book that's getting ready to come out, but that is a promise to widows. You cry out to God, and he will, he says, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot. And I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. In other words, if you take advantage of the widow and the fatherless, then I will make your wives widows and your children fatherless. They will, that's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's the principle of what is called lex talionis, uh, which we'll get into at some other times. But it's the principle of uh, that judgment is equivalent to the crime. And so God promises that there would be judgment upon the nation if they treated those within the nation in an unjust in an unjust manner. Um, he, then we go on to the next major passage, which is in Deuteronomy, which is a rearticulation of the Mosaic Law by Moses as his closing sermon, his closing message to the nation 
prior to his, his death and prior to their entering into the land. Moses was prohibited from entering the land because of an act of disobedience to God, but this is his parting shot. So there's a, a restatement of the Mosaic law and a reminder to the people of the importance of that. And so we see in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy that there's a special promise that God stands in the place of the absent husband, the absent father, uh, to be a special protector and provider for the widow. Uh, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. Notice this is grounded in the character, the essence, the authority of God as the sovereign ruler of the universe. He is just, verse 18, he administers justice. He is the standard of justice. God is ascetic. Uh, uh, he is righteous. And so he, uh, his character is essentially righteous, and he will execute justice in terms of his application. So he's the one who administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the stranger. Now, the stranger is the Gentile, the non-Jewish person who lived in the land. And so the law was designed to provide uh, an equitable and righteous standard for all people. It wasn't just for Jews with a secondary standard for for Gentiles on terms of justice, on terms of their uh, access to God in, in the temple, there was a distinction because Gentiles were not covenant people unless they entered into a uh, specific covenant with God through becoming a proselyte, as Ruth did. We'll look at Ruth and Naomi in just a minute. So God is the one who administered justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing, which shows the, this this emphasis on God as the one who ultimately stands as the protector uh, for the widow. I'm not going to get into some of the secondary issues with with strangers because uh, this is dealing with those who are in the land under the law code of Israel at that time. Now, Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29 tells us how God provides through uh, the system of taxation known as tithing, for the widows and orphans. It is a minimal safety net. There were three different tithes that were mandated for the uh, Jewish people under the law. They were designed to support the bureaucracy of the theocracy. And under a theocracy, there was a guarantee that the bureaucracy would not grow out of hand. Today, I think almost half the people in this country... Uh, receive their paycheck from the federal government, either directly or indirectly, and that is a recipe for absolute disaster. Uh, and, and, but, and, and God warned about that in one of the greatest chapters for understanding uh, political theory in the Old Testament is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the Jewish people rejected uh, Samuel, as he was growing old, he was the last judge. They reject Samuel. Samuel took it personally. God said, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And and they wanted a king like everybody else. You always have a problem. People want to be like everybody else. And we have a lot of people in this nation who want to be like everybody else, i.e., we want to be like Europe. Why would you want to be like Europe? We've never wanted to be like Europe. What made America great is we wanted to be different from Europe. Whatever the Europeans did, we wanted to do the opposite. 
because Europe has, has just led to economic slavery and disaster. They, just look at the mess in Greece and Portugal and the EU and everything else because they, they, they've rejected truth at the very core of their culture. Why in the world would we want to have the kind of socialism light that they have in Europe? It's a miserable failure. And yet we have people in this country who are blind to history, blind to economics, and they continue to pant after, uh, after the uh, leeks and garlics, as it were, of Europe. They're no different from the wilderness generation of Israel who wanted to go back to the slavery of Egypt rather than strike out in independence and initiative, independence upon God and independence from man and human thought, and God had to bring judgment upon them because they had a slave mentality. And socialism and government dependence built upon government expansion, government as the solution, not the problem, is always the key to slavery of citizens. It's a slave mentality. We don't want to assume responsibility. We want someone else to. And see, when we look at these mandates, it is a very limited role of the government. Uh, there's one tithe of 10% that went to the support of the bureaucracy, the le- priests and Levites. There was a second tithe, uh, annual tithe, of 10% that was designed to be a major party that happened every year that was built upon a, uh, the uh, uh, national gross national product. And if they were obedient to God, then there was a huge gross national product. The 10% was huge, and they had a great party. And they're drinking, uh, they're drinking expensive champagne and eating caviar. And the next year, they're disobedient to God, and uh, they have a very, uh, they have a recession or depression. And the G- GDP uh, is is much much less. And so they have. Uh, you know, they have peanut butter on Ritz crackers and, and uh, Bud Light or something, and that's the best that they can do. Uh, and it's a real uh, concrete evidence that, hmm, we've missed the blessing. Now, I, know, I don't want to offend anybody who's like Ritz crackers and peanut butter or Bud Light, but you understand the comparison. Okay, so... There was one tithe, though, that was taken every third year, and that's the one that's mentioned here in verse uh, Deuteronomy 14.28. The end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year stored up within your gates, and the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. The rest of the nation is going to be blessed because this was a provision to take care of the widows and the orphans. So worst-case scenario, there's a minimal provision for this one segment of society. Now, there's another way uh, in which this was uh, provided, and that's seen in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17. Uh, you shall not pervert justice, uh, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. Interesting. Not take a widow's garment as a pledge. In other words, you're not going to leave them with nothing so that if they need to secure a loan, you're not going to secure it with something that would take away uh, their house and their home. And this kind of thinking is the foundation of the homestead law in Texas, by the way. 
uh, the kind of thinking that influenced uh, many in America that even if you got in extreme arrears and in debt, the government couldn't take your home. Now, that's not true in other states, but it's true in Texas, at least still true in Texas, that no matter what happens, the government can't take your home away from you um, until you die. And then if you haven't paid your taxes and you're rear in debts, then um, that's going to impact your estate, but you can't lose your home while you're still, uh, while you're still alive. And so uh, there's, a, there's a provision here. Not to, not to take everything out of your company, as it were, not to take everything out of your field, but to leave something there for those who could come along and get it. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. Leave something there. Uh, it shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. Now notice this. This is also part of the welfare program. It's a workfare program. Because there's there are, there's still uh, produce left in the field. This is seen in the next verse. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You leave something there. You don't harvest it and go take it to them. You leave it in the field, and they have to go harvest it. There is that provision that they still have to be have to work to some degree to get what is. What is theirs? Now, there's a great example of this in uh, in the book of Ruth. Just turn over with me as we move through uh, the scriptures. After you finish the book, get through Judges before you get to Samuel. There's a little book sandwiched in between, just two or three chapters. That's the book of Ruth. It's misnamed. It should be called the book of Naomi because it's all about uh, <clears throat> the mother-in-law, uh, Naomi. In the first chapter, Naomi loses her husband. Uh, she has two sons, uh, Malan and Killian. And they are married to two uh, Moabite women who are uh, not Jew- they're not Jewish, they're Moabite, Moabitesses, and they all lose their husbands. And so uh, one of the uh, daughters-in-law leaves, and, uh, and, but Ruth stays with Naomi. Naomi, in her grief, says, call me Mara or bitter. And I've known people who've been named Mara. There's one lady who shows up on Fox News on one of their panels, and her name is Mara. And I wonder, why is somebody going to call their daughter bitter? I wouldn't want to have my, you know, name a kid bitterness. So we have Naomi the Bitter. And Naomi the Bitter in chapter 1 becomes Naomi the Blessed in the last chapter. And what causes that change is the role of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, who provides a solution to the problem of, uh, the, of the destitute Naomi and Ruth. Uh, in Ruth chapter 2, at the very beginning, we read that there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of uh, Elimelech, uh, a distant relative. His name was Boaz. What's happened in between is they were out of the land, and after Elimelech and the two sons died, Ruth and Naomi came back into the land, the place of blessing. And so Ruth, the Moabitess, after they've moved back, says, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. What's going on here? She's, she's applying the principle that we see here in, Levitic, in, in Deuteronomy 24. He's, if he's following the law, he's leaving grain in the field 
Uh, and that grain is left there for the widows and the orphans and the strangers in the land, those who are destitute. And she's saying, I need to go to the work fair office and bring home food. And so that's, that's what she's doing. And Naomi says, go. Uh, so uh, there's more going on here than that, but that's what we're focusing on is God's provision for the widows. And in verse 3, we read that she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, which is going to the city of David. Uh, that's because Ruth is going to become his great-grandmother. Um, and they, uh, and they said, uh, the Lord be with you. They answered him, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And he learns that she is a widow and that what is going on in all of this too, because she's a distant relative, he has the opportunity to fulfill the role of the man and take her as his wife under the uh, biblical principle of, of leverant marriage. And so this is God's provision. She's a young widow. Uh, Naomi's an older widow. And, and see, we don't have things spelled out quite as precisely in the Old Testament as we do in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, we'll see the same distinction that younger widows are expected to remarry, but the older widows are not expected to remarry because if they're past a certain age, they're not going to live much longer. And uh, if they don't have family or a male to take care of them, then the uh, body of believers in the Old Testament, Israel, and the New Testament, the church should take care of them if there's no one else to uh, to fill in the gap. The younger ones are to remarry so that they can have a husband and a family uh, that will provide for them. So the this episode in uh, Ruth chapter 2 is grounded upon this role of Deuteronomy chapter 24, God's grace provision to take care of those who are left without a provider. God provides directly as well as indirectly in this. Now, a couple of other passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 68.5, God is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. It's an unusual word that's used there in uh, Psalm 68. It's the word dayan, which means a judge. It's a word that's more often used for a judge in, in, in poetry, uh, than uh, in legal literature, in legal literature, it's a mishpat. But it refers to one who upholds justice and uprighteousness, one who is going to uh, stand in the gap for the uh, righteous uh, application of the law. So God says he is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. This is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146, 9, the Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. So God is the defender of the widow and the orphan. That is uh, uh, very important to understand that that is part of God's work in his righteousness. In Isaiah 117, there is a... Com- uh, uh, commendation to the people or, or a challenge to the people by Isaiah, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow, that there is to be justice as part of loving your neighbor as yourself within the social structure of Israel, and there is a condemnation upon the Israelites who have returned from the Babylonian captivity in Malachi 3.5. God says, I will come near to you for judgment. 
I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me. See, if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, you don't fear God. And because you don't fear God, you are treating others from a selfish uh, standpoint instead of loving your neighbor as your as yourself. Now, when you get into the New Testament, there's some similar uh, mandates. When we get into the Gospels, uh, Jesus uh, confronts the scribes and Pharisees, saying that they devour. In Luke 20, verse 47, they devour widows' houses and, for a pretense, make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, this didn't apply to every scribe and every Pharisee. There were obviously good Pharisees and good scribes, such as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and, and many others. But there were those who, who took advantage and abused and the, the widows and orphans. And there, there were ways in which the uh, temple, one way they did it, the temple authorities managed the property of widows in a way that took advantage of them so that the, uh, uh, widows, uh, they, they, they received extra financial remuneration. Uh, they took advantage of their hospitality. They took homes as pledges of debts, knowing that they could not be repaid. And then when the widow died, they had, uh, they had the home. And so there were these different ways in which, uh, some of the scribes were taking advantage of widows in violation to the Mosaic law. There were also these similar complaints to Jesus' complaint in the Talmud. In the Talmud, there was a complaint against those who managed a widow's estate and gave themselves a healthy fee for taking care of it. So this isn't just Jesus complaining about the scribes. Uh, the Talmud, uh, although it refers to a time a little bit later on, is uh, uh, records the same kind of complaint. So this was an abuse that took place uh, in the first century uh, in Israel as part of their um, way in which they were uh, falsely applying uh, the Mosaic Law. Then when we get into Timothy, there's a long chapter that deals with the responsibility of believers to widows in the church. And Paul says, uh, honor widows who are really widows. And this word to me, that's Greek word to me that's translated honor has to do with financial support. Financial support. Later on in the chapter, he will say, uh, let those who teach well be given double honor. I don't know of too many churches that actually apply that and give a, a, a pastor a double salary, but that's exactly what it means. This refers to the salary, the payment for a widow. She is to be taken care of financially. But they fit a certain qualification. Not just any woman who has lost a husband fits this qualification. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5.4, Paul qualifies this as, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, divine institution number three, it's not the government's responsibility, not the church's responsibility. It's the family's responsibility. And if you've got a widow in the church whose family is not taking care of her, then the role of the leadership of the church is to confront the family with their responsibilities to take care of uh, the widow. Uh, Paul says, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now, she who is a, really a widow and left alone trusts in God, and, and so there's a spiritual qualification as well. She's not just a widow, but she's one who is 
a, a maturing believer who trusts in God for her sustenance and continues in supplications and prayers uh, day and night. There are other qualifications that are given in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5. For example, the, it talks about uh, the fact that she should be a uh, widow, a wife of one husband. Now, there have been those down through church history who have taken this to mean that she can't have remarried. But this would run contrary to the uh, uh, recommendation of the Apostle Paul in the same chapter that if she is under 60, that she is young and she should remarry. So if you've got a young woman who uh, is widowed and Paul says she needs to get remarried, there's nothing wrong with getting remarried. So whatever uh, the wife of one husband means, it would have to apply to the fact that it's conceivable that a woman would have a husband who died in war, disease, whatever. By the time she's 30, 35, she remarries and now she's 65, that husband dies, and now she uh, is left without anyone to support her. Uh, we wouldn't want to come along and say, oh, well, you were married twice. Well, well, wait a minute, Paul told me I needed to get remarried. But you've had some people in church history who've said this terminology, husband of one wife or one, wife of one husband, means that you can't uh, remarry under any condition whatsoever, even the death of a spouse, and that just uh, totally... Uh, uh, contradicts what what scripture says uh, so the woman uh, the widow should be older she is dependent upon God she has a good reputation verse 10 says she's well reported for good works um, if she's brought up children she's lodged strangers she's washed the saints feet she's relieved the afflicted she's diligently followed every good work so she's one who's been involved in the local church and involved in in uh, ministry, but now she has no children who can take care of her and no husband who can take care of her. That's what, what qualifies her. Why? Because the primary responsibility is on the individual and on the family to take care of those who are in need. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not the government's responsibility, except in an extreme case. And so how should we apply this to government? Change the laws. Force families to take on their responsibility. Don't create laws that exacerbate irresponsibility. But that's exactly what we've done. And as long as we have laws that reinforce and reward irresponsible family behavior, it's only going to get worse because our trend is to be irresponsible and not responsible. I mean, if the government's going to take care of my parent, and I don't have to, well, I'm going to let the government do it. Why, get, why dig into my piggy bank, piggy bank to take care of my dad? Let the government dole take care of it. See, it feeds and exacerbates irresponsibility. And it, it all, but it's a systemic problem. The whole culture becomes dependent upon a government solution or a, in some other institution to provide the solution, whereas Scripture makes it clear it's nobody's responsibility other than the family, and the family is responsible to take care of the parents, and it's not the government's role. That should be, that is, should be based on the Mosaic Law pattern. That should be, it's not that it shouldn't be there at all, but it's an extremely limited role and not a not the kind of role that we see uh, going on today. And so this just sort of gives us a summary of what the Bible teaches about 
the role of the widow and the responsibility of the church uh, to take care of those. And in James one twenty seven, we read, uh, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So this is part of what it means to love one another as Christ loved the church. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see the pattern that's here and how this is an expression of our love as a body of believers for others within the body to provide for them when there's no one to provide for them and to be uh, an instrument that you use in order to sustain those who are left without a provider, without a protector. Uh, Father, we pray that as we look at these different doctrines that we might come to understand more fully uh, the roles, responsibilities we have and the fact that you as a righteous God expect us to behave in a manner that is consistent with your righteous character executing justice in the land in every area and putting our emphasis where it should be and not in the wrong direction. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.